613. I had 613 rules to follow. Can you imagine that? Can, can, can you even understand how many that is? And, and, and I, I knew every one of them, and I followed them, mostly. So there I am, sitting across from Jesus. And he looks at me and says, Nicodemus, it's not about the rules. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially that's what he's saying. It's, it's not about the rules. It's not about the rules. Look at this from, from my perspective. Um, I'd seen him come in the day before, and, and, and he had turned the temple upside down. This is the place, mind you, that, that I'd spent my life preserving. So you can imagine how much I wanted to have a talk with him in a secluded place at nighttime. How would you feel if someone, someone said to you, someone you respected, they tell you that Everything that you'd dedicated your life to had missed the mark completely. You're a fool. That's how you feel. So I said something to him. One rule that seems too good to be true because it was. Believe he's the Messiah. Believe he's the one that was promised. And, and he said it like he just glazed over it like it was some simple thing and then went on talking about good and evil and and I'm thinking, wait, go back, go back to where you took what was so complicated and made it not complicated. My whole life was in those complications. My, my religion was in those complications. Making sure to follow the details of the law. I made sure that every T was crossed. I thought that is what was going to save me. 613 laws. I was wrong. It was love that saved me. For God so loved. Privilege to be with you at West Highland Baptist Church. For those of you that have been around any length of time, you know that in my 
28 years as pastor of James North Baptist Church, that this church has come alongside of our church and has supported us faithfully in a variety of ways. And so many of you I know, although some of you I don't, and you're going to have to remind me your names as I reconnect, and as our families here, my family will be up in the second service. I told them they did not have to come twice with me every Sunday, um, but they will be here in the second service. And so it's a delight and a joy to be here worshiping with you. We are so thankful as a family, and I can say this as a James North congregation for West Highland Baptist Church. Between now and Advent, I'm going to preach a, ser a series called Encountering Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at various encounters that Jesus has. Nicodemus this morning, woman at the well, a variety of them. The Canaanite woman who Jesus calls a dog. If you don't know that's in the Bible, that will be a surprise in a couple of weeks that I just ruined. Later on, we're going to talk about suffering. Jesus and the man born blind, and how does he engage suffering? We're going to talk about skeptics, and how does Jesus engage skeptics? And what does he do in his response as he's claiming messiahship? And so we're going to take a look at various passages through the Gospels and through a variety of Gospels over the next number of months. And I'm thrilled to be able to do that. And as Chris today talked about your one who's your one, this is a great series to invite an unsaved friend or family member to. If you are praying about someone, you're having gospel-centered conversations with someone, you're talking to them. I know the small group ministries, because I was preparing questions, follows the Sunday sermons. This is a great series to invite a friend or family member to Alpha 2, invite a family, friend, colleague to small group 2, to have a coffee with, to be able to share who Christ is. Who's the religious person? The religious person, simply put, is the person who believes they are good enough for God. They're good enough for God. Typically, they're moral. They're righteous. They're a rule follower. They're someone who's convinced that there are certain rules that they need to abide by in order to get to heaven, in order for God to be pleased with them. I've met these people. I remember when I first went, met Wally. He's one of the Karen. They're the people from Burma. Wally was 17. When they were in the jungle and refugee camps, they would worship God every day, almost all day, five days a week. They would just gather and worship God. That's all they could do in the refugee camp. They would just gather and worship him. So he would be part of all of this. He took some Bible college courses that they offered in the refugee camp. And then he ends up in Canada. 17 years of age, part of a Bible study that I'm running, and he decides he wants nothing to do with God. They, they'd never held devices in their hands before. They didn't ex know electricity or running water or sanitation. And so because of that, they never had phones. They never had tablets. They never saw TV. They never had a vehicle. They'd never seen these things. And now all of this was at their disposal and all the sin that comes with it. And he and all of his friends just walked away from the Lord and just engaged in all the stuff the world would let you engage in when you're 17 and 18 and 19 years old. I think of Keith. Keith grew up in a united church. His whole life faithful to it. Heard scripture read. Sung songs that we would sing. Hymns that we would know. Was a leader in the church. A Sunday school teacher. Taught the lessons. Knew them. Only missed a Sunday when he was sick or when they were on holidays. Faithful. Faithful. 
and was convinced that God would let him into glory because he was good. And yet that's not how we're saved. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3, the first verse, John chapter 3. I'll stutter step through these passages, meaning I'll read a portion, I'll explain it, read another portion, explain it, because that's one of the best ways to preach narrative, to preach narrative. So John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Jewish ruling council. Here's a devoutly religious man. He's educated. He's highly regarded. He's not just a Pharisee. He's on the ruling council for the Jews. He loves the temple. I mean, he would have had whole portions of Scripture memorized. When I say portions, books like Isaiah. I remember in Bible college, groups of us said, let's memorize Ephesians, and we did. Let's memorize Philippians, and we did. Then we got into Romans. Romans isn't that much bigger when you consider it compared to Isaiah. And I remember Romans, it did us in. Like, we were like, okay, memorizing the book of Romans is way harder than Philippians. Let's, let's go back to a smaller book. So we went to Philemon. It was easier. Um, he would have whole portions of the Old Testament memorized and know them. He's a curious leader. He came to Jesus at night. He said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. He comes at night likely to avoid his colleagues. Maybe so there's no interruptions as Jesus now has some fame. You'll note through John there's a light, dark theme. It starts right in John 1. Jesus is the light of the world. Right? The darkness has not understood it. Light and, and darkness is one of the themes in John. When I get to Nicodemus and God, or, or Jesus raising, uh, not Nicodemus, Lazarus, and God raising Lazarus to life again, all three themes find themselves in John 11. But here, light and darkness. Nicodemus is drawn to the light, yet he's unable to leave his darkness. And his darkness is greater than he knew. Notice what he calls Jesus, Rabbi. Rabbi. He calls him Rabbi. He shows him respect. Notice he says, you're a teacher. And you're from God. And he knows he performs miracles. Did you catch all of that? Nicodemus, in this moment, has some respect for Jesus. He doesn't understand who he is or what he's come to do yet, but he believes he's a rabbi, though he's been trained nowhere. He doesn't belong to any sacred school of learning in the Jewish tradition. He knows he's performing miracles, and he calls him a teacher. Well, there's this perplexing response. Jesus replies, Very truly, I tell you, this is verse 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, we give Nicodemus a hard time here, but don't. No one had ever uttered these words before in human history. This is the first time anyone had ever heard them. We hear them, and if you've been in the church any length of time, you hear born again, you have an idea of what it means. Nicodemus could not conceptualize what it meant. He had no idea. Born again? Born again? Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean, born again? Who can be born again? What is Jesus saying when he's saying you need to be born again? It's simple. Everything about you is wrong. That's, that's nice, eh? You need to be born again. 
everything about you is wrong. Do you believe that right now? Without Christ, everything about you is wrong. If you don't believe that right now, you are not saved. If you don't believe without Christ, everything about you is wrong, if you're disagreeing with me right now on this, you are not saved. You can't be. You can't be. You must be born again. You must be born again. You need a whole do-over. Everything about you is wrong. I mean, Nicodemus is hearing this. He's distinguished. He's credentialed. He's religious. He's respected. And Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. R.C. Sproul says this, and I quote, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. That's a great quote. Young man Calvin from a Buddhist home came to faith in Christ. It happened uh, through our ministry, and I was at uh, MVC speaking that summer. He was at Camp Wajidawin there with the young people from downtown who otherwise would never experience camp. They were there for a week. And I went over to see him, 17 years of age, athlete, young Asian guy, come from a Buddhist home, who in the triple jump, he was like one of the top three Ontarians. This, this guy who was shorter than me could hop, skip, and jump. And I said, how do you, like, he showed me videos. It was incredible. I said, how do you do that? He said, they're springs. My legs are just springs. And so I went over to see him. He's reading his Bible. And I said, I said, I said how's your week been? He's been? He said, it's been amazing. I said, why, it's been, why has it been amazing? He said, I've learned Jesus is everything. He came right from camp, and we went out for a coffee, and we're talking, and we're talking about sin. And he's talking about how sin is when you rebel against God. And I said, that's true. But I sin, said, sin is actually putting anything in place of God. So if you put your athleticism or your grades, he had really high grades. And because he came from a really poor family, and he helped with their rent and their uh, utilities, um, he, he wanted to go to university so that you know, he could help his family get out of poverty. So his academics were really important to him. His athleticism was really important to him. I said, if you put those things in place of God, I said, that's sin as well. We're sitting at a table. He looks at me. He does this. He goes, and I said, what is that? I had no clue what it was. I'm old. And he said, mind-blowing. Sin isn't just rebelling against God. It's putting anything in place of him. It's, it's making anything God-like that shouldn't be, that isn't God. He said, I, I never thought of that. Well, confusion ensues. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mom's womb and be born. Because he has no category, because this doesn't make sense, but he understands what Jesus is saying. He gets it. You need a do-over. Everything about you is wrong. He's like, I don't even understand this. He's like, do you see how big I am? My mom's not going to like this at all. How, how can I be born again? Surely this isn't possible. He's both perplexed and insulted. Listen, I've been trying to lose weight. It's been tough. Three years ago, I faithfully started going to the gym. I cycle to the gym four or five mornings a week, nine kilometers there. I work out 40 minutes. I cycle home. And it's done nothing. I, I'm eating my way through my workouts. And so 
My wife has said that for years. Sometimes I would fast. I would go to the gym the next morning. I would weigh myself and I'd gain a pound. I'm like, how is that possible? How? So a good friend of mine who I will not name, but who attends West Highland, and I will not say what they do for a living, that might give it away, said to me, I should put an app on my phone called My Fat Secret. So I did. Been doing it for a couple of weeks. So I, I put the app on the phone. I put the app on, and as I put the app on, it's, remember, it's called My Fat Secret. The first thing it does is I'm setting up my profile. It says, your profile is public. I'm like, what? What kind of a secret is this? So first I'm confused, right? Like, what's going on here? And then it says what you do for a living. Like, and it's got like high active things, like you're a construction worker, and low active things, like what I do. Where you go to a meeting, you go to a lunch meeting, you go to a coffee meeting, you go to another meeting, you somehow have another coffee meeting, you come home and your wife's prepared dinner for you. And so it says on the app that I rest 22 and a half hours a day. I'm like, what? It says resting, resting. On the days I don't go to the gym, it says I rest 24 hours a day, resting. And I said to my wife, I can't believe this. And Amy said, why do you even need a nap? Like, I understand why you like to nap. You rest all the time, it says. Perplexed and insulted. That's Nicodemus. You must be born again. He's perplexed. No one's ever uttered these words before. No one's ever said them before. No, no one's ever used them before. What do you mean, Jesus? I can't enter into my mother's womb again. I don't understand. And insulted, what do you mean everything about me is all wrong? I'm one of the most religious people on the world, Jesus. How can that even be true? But he knew Psalm 14, which is quoted verse for verse in Psalm 53. Verse 2 says this in 3 of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even, not even one. Totally depraved. Total depravity isn't that we are in every way as bad as we could be. It's not that we're all pedophiles and murderers. Total depravity is not that we are in every way as bad as we could be. It's that we are not in any one way as good as we should be. It's total. It's affected all of us. And in no way are we ever as good as we should be. We're so affected by the fall. And Nicodemus knew this. He knew his sinful heart. He knew he needed to be born again. He just didn't understand it. So Jesus answered to him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell uh, where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus answers him. When Nicodemus is saying, what do I do? I can't enter my mother's womb a second time. And what does Jesus say? Four things. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. No one. He says, no one can do this. 
No one. Just like Psalm 14 says, right? There's no one good, no, not one. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. So he talks about what it means to be born of water and spirit. You need to be cleansed. That's the water part. This isn't baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. And it's not about rules. Ezekiel 26, that surely Nicodemus would have known, says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Note, water as cleansing. He's saying to Nicodemus, you need to be cleansed. You need a cleansing. Your soul needs to be cleansed. And what is God going to do? Your spirit is going to cleanse you. Flesh can only give birth to flesh, but the spirit can give birth to the spirit. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Note, the spirit will enable it. It's the work of God, but he will go where he chooses. The wind will blow wherever it pleases. You hear it sound. You cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. God chooses to save people. Is that not good news? He chooses to reach into people's hearts and lives and grip them with faith. He loves to do it. Loves to do it. God delights in saving. And I don't know who the one person you're praying for is. Here's my problem. Chris told me a week ago he was going to do something like this. And I'm like, Chris, I don't have one. I've got like seven or more. I have family members. I have friends. I have neighbors that we pray for faithfully. Man, God, but is there one person where your spirit's going to work in their life right now? Is there one person that I know where you're going to choose to open their eyes up? Is there one person I know where you're going to just unveil yourself in a powerful way and save them? Is there one person? And God, would you show me who that is so I can faithfully be declaring the gospel to them? I can't save them. My job is simply to declare the gospel to them. But God gloriously saves. Is that not good news? They need to be cleansed. And his spirit will choose to move in them. And what does he say to Nicodemus? He says, you shouldn't be surprised at what I'm saying. Verse 7, that you must be born again. Nicodemus, this shouldn't shock you. This shouldn't shock you. You teach the conditions for requirement and entry into the kingdom. How did you not get this? Nicodemus, how did you not understand this? How did you miss that there's no one good, no, not one? That you can't keep the law, no one can. And that you desperately need a Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. That. To verse 9 of, of John 3. How can this be, Nicodemus said. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. You don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. And you still, you don't accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? What's he talking about here? What's Jesus mean? I think it's this. Jesus is saying, I'm speaking to you still in terms of Old Testament, but there's a mystery of the gospel. Isn't what the Apostle Paul calls it? There's a mystery of the gospel. How do I understand the incarnation, that God cloaked himself with deity? That's what Jesus did. God, sorry, deity, cloaked himself with humanity. 
How do I understand that? I don't, I believe it. How do I understand that Jesus Christ was able to take my sin upon himself so that he could, upon himself, he took my sin upon himself so that he could grant me his righteousness? That's imputation. He could take my sin. The holy God of the universe, God the Son, the second person of the triune being, could take my sin upon himself on the cross. In fact, Corinthians tells us that he became our sin. How is that possible? And he can then grant me his righteousness. I don't know, but I believe it. How do I understand the resurrection? That God was able to raise the Son to life again? I believe it. How do I understand the Trinity, that it's God the Father, the Son, and Spirit? I, I know nothing that's triune except for him. I believe it. And then he's eternal. I understand the no-ending part. Man, it's hard to comprehend the no-beginning part, isn't it? Everything we see, everything our eyes land on has a beginning, not God. No beginning with God has always existed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, if I'm just trying to explain the Old Testament to you right now, and the fact that I'm the Messiah sitting with you, and you're having a hard time understanding this, if you're having a hard time just understanding earthly conversation about the law, how can I ever get into heavenly things? And then he says in verse 13, no one has gone into heaven except the one who came down, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is it. This is the gospel. This is from Numbers chapter 21, where the Israelites were complaining. We don't like the food. We don't like the desert. We had it better in Egypt. And God sent venomous snakes and began to bite them. And numbers of them, thousands of them died. And they cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, we've sinned. And God said to Moses, take bronze, create a snake. And anyone who looks on the snake who's been bitten will be saved. And Jesus said, just as Moses did that so people could be saved in that day, so the Son of Man will be lifted up just like the snake. And anyone who believes in him will be saved. Larry King, the famed talk show host, was once asked, if you, could be, if you could interview anyone in history, who would it be? He said, that's easy. I'd interview Jesus of Nazareth. And I'd only ask him one question. Are you indeed virgin born? And then King said this. The answer to that question would explain all of human history for me. Is that not powerful? Only need to ask him one question. Are you indeed virgin born? The answer to that question would explain all of human history for me. What is the cross? This is a quote from Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors. God needed a way of destroying evil without destroying us. Is that not good news? God is always, only, ever against evil. That's great news, isn't it? Now, it's evil as he defines it, not evil as we define it. And God needed a way to destroy evil without destroying us. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. You see, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Is that not good news? You could never be good enough. You could never go to church enough. You could never sign up for enough small groups. You could never lead enough. You could never be on a platform enough. You could never follow the Old Testament law enough. You, you could never, whatever you want, read your Bible enough, pray enough. You could never do it no matter how good you are. You could never save yourself. So God, the Father, loved us. Did you catch that? We often talk about the love of Jesus. God, the Father, loved us so much that he sent his Son. And who's it for? For anyone, anywhere, anytime, who believes. For anyone who believes. So Keith, liberal United Church guy, Here's the gospel. He's invited by a friend to another service. He's sitting in that service. He's in his 60s. And for the first time in his life, he hears the gospel. And he's confused. The verses are the same. The passages are the same. But something so different. This isn't about being good. This isn't about being nice. This isn't about just serving. This is about a relationship. He'd never heard this before. This is about God working in his life. This is about salvation. This is about God saving. And he turns his life to Christ in that service and powerfully has been walking with the Lord ever since. A few years into Wally's mess, the young man from the Karen congregation, I'm preaching at their church. He's now in his early 20s. And he came to church that day to end his life. He was coming to say goodbye. A friend of his had committed suicide I had taken that friend's funeral, and a number of the young people were just distraught with their 21-year-old friend ending his life. So while he was coming to say goodbye to everyone and then go home and end his life, I was preaching in that service, and at the end of it, he just came up, just tears running down his face. He walked over to me. He just landed in my shoulder and was crying. And I said, what's wrong? He said, everything. I said, what do you need? He said, Jesus Christ. We met the next night in my office. He just began to renounce sin, and as he began to renounce sin and his tears, God saved him that night. He says as he left, he said, I left his office, I went down to my car. This was part of his baptismal testimony. I put my car on, I turned it on, and I put worship music on, and as I left and I drove away, I felt something I'd never felt before, God's spirit. His spirit was in me, speaking to me, ministering to me, talking to me. I knew I was loved. I knew I was loved in that moment, and I knew that God had saved me. I knew the spirit had chosen to grip my heart, to change my life, and he's changed everything. After God saved him, he's now saved 17 more young men and women who had walked away from the Lord that we have baptized. He is a good God, and he delights in saving so what happened to Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus we find just a little bit later in John 7 defending Jesus. And people are like, you on his side? And then in John 19, we find Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea. And what are they doing? They're taking his body after it died to bury it. Nicodemus brings the spices, John tells us in the scriptures. And all of a sudden, this man, who would only meet him at night, was there with him at his death, publicly taking his body with Joseph of Arimathea, declaring that he was now a follower of Jesus Christ.
When this happened, I don't know. But at some point through the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit of God who will blow where he will gripped into his heart and life and saved him. You see, when we hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we shouldn't be enamored by God's love because the world is so big. We should be enamored by God's love because the world is so bad. Because the world is so bad. And imagine being there. Imagine you're Nicodemus and you're there. You're at the cross. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. Your friends, your colleagues, the Sanhedrin, are in charge of all of this. And you believe he's innocent. In fact, you believe he's the Messiah. And you're watching him hang there on the cross, bleeding to death, only offering grace and love and hope. And maybe as you're there and people are crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. These words I have running through your mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he can save anyone. And somewhere in those moments, I don't know if it was at the cross or before that, God grips his heart. Oh, I can't wait to meet him. Nicodemus, what was it like? What was it like to meet him at night? What was it like to be there at the cross? What was it like to take his body down? What was it like when he was raised to life again? And when did God save you? When did his spirit grip your heart? When did he reveal to you that he was the Messiah, the Christ? Won't those be great moments in eternity? Nicodemus, tell me what this was all about. I'd love to hear. And maybe you know someone who's religious. As I close off, just a couple of thoughts. Maybe you know someone who thinks their goodness will save them. Maybe they're a Muslim or a Sikh or a Hindu. We've gone down to one vehicle, so I Ubered up today, and we've been one vehicle for a year, and it's been fine. Uh, it works out most days, and uh, occasionally we have complexities, but all of my Uber drivers almost invariably are Muslim. So we're coming up here today, I'm going to preach, and I ask him where he's from and what he's up to, and blah, blah, blah. We get into this conversation. You know Muslims believe in the virgin birth, right? Just not the way we do. You know Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet, just not the way we do. He is the prophet. You know Muslims believe he's coming back, right? It's in the Quran. But, of course, as a Muslim, the starting point we have with them is incredible. Maybe it's someone who's religious who thinks they're good. Maybe it's a Muslim or Sikh or Hindu. I don't know. But who is your religious one that you know in your circle of influence who somehow thinks their goodness is going to get to heaven, get them to heaven? Oh, would you begin to pray that God would open their eyes and save them? And if you're sitting here today and you're one of those people, you're sitting here and you thought your goodness would get you to heaven, and do you realize that it couldn't? Do you know today, even this day, you can turn your life to Jesus Christ? Even this day, you can be born again. You can trust him. And if you're sitting here today and you've known him for a long time, oh, would you walk out of this place today between now and the picnic? I hope to see some of you there. And would you just lavish in the wondrous grace of Jesus Christ who saved you? You must be born again. And at some point, the Spirit of God gripped your heart and opened your eyes and granted you life. Praise his name. Would you pray with me? 
We're so thankful, God, for the grace that you grant us and the hope we have in Christ. God, upon each of our hearts, would you impress a person who doesn't know you, who thinks that their goodness would save them. And God, if we're sitting here today and that's us, we ask today that you would save us, that you would work in our heart, you would open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, you'd save us. And God, for those of us that know you, may today be a day where we just relish, marvel at this salvation that you have granted us that cost you everything. We pray this in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Can you give our God a hand for his salvation in your life today? Thank him for his grace. As our benediction today from 1 Peter chapter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith you are shielded by God's power until the coming of your salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And God's people said, Have a great day in the Lord. God bless you.